Welcome to GMFC Studios, God's production company. Praise the Lord, everybody. It's good to have you here with us in the studio, those that are, have made it this morning, and we thank the Lord for those that have tuned in uh, via the platforms that we have. We definitely salute you and we celebrate God with you. God is definitely worthy of our praises. If there's anything we remember from last week, sometimes, most of the time, all of the time, our praise should be out in front. We've been talking over the last few months about struggle, tribulation, strife, crisis that is occurring in the life of believers. You know, some people would have you to believe that that's just simply not what's going to happen to those that are in the body of Christ or, or that when you come into the body of Christ, you're going to be delivered from all of that and not have to really deal with it. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. In fact, tribulation is part of the Christian journey. Suffering is part of the Christian journey. And who are we to think that we should not suffer if we are to emulate Christ in all that we are and in all that we do, and Christ suffered greatly for our sake. But who do we surround ourselves with? Especially in the body of Christ, you have to be very careful because not everyone that says Christian or says I'm a believer is truly in alignment with the word of God. And you have to be very careful when, especially you're going through something, knowing who the right people are to be around. And I just want to take some time this morning to just talk to you about your circle of folks, putting the right people in that circle and who those right people really are. It seems that before crisis enters people's lives, they only want to surround themselves with people who are successful and without problems themselves. After all, this is really what the self-help books teach us. If you want to be successful, what do you do? You surround yourself with successful people. If you, if you are around people in crisis, they can become a hindrance to you. If you are around people that are uh, despondent or down or going through, maybe you should pick some different friends. Now this, uh, it sounds like it makes some logical sense. Like, you know, there's this, you know, aura of, yeah, I can get with that. I understand that. You got to be around the people that, you know, are, are making it. Some people even think that their image and reputation can be tarnished. <laughs> if you're in relationship with anyone whose journey in life, well, hasn't been, uh, all that we might even chalk it up to being less than perfect all the while knowing that our own journeys <laughs> have been anything but perfect themselves what's at the core of this type of thinking is a self-righteous attitude that says if you had enough faith you wouldn't be having problems but I want to let you in on a secret this morning I, I I thank, I thank the Lord because as I study the word of God, he's always showing me something 
especially as it relates to the idea of self-help or the motivational speaking that we see so often from pulpits across, at the very least, America. But I want to let you in on something that God showed me in his word. This is something that goes against the typical ideologies and literature relating to how to be successful. Your problems, and I want you to understand this, and you should take a minute to even just write this down. Your problems have nothing to do with your success or your defeat. Let me say that again for you. Because too often we correlate things that really have nothing to do with each other. Your problems have nothing to do with your success or your defeat. Your problems are not a byproduct of any success, nor are they a byproduct of any defeat. Your success and your defeats have nothing to do with your circumstances. Now, essentially, the idea of success or defeat are simply attitudes that carry people through life. You have a defeatist attitude or you have an attitude that puts you in the place of being successful. The uh, old adage is, is the glass half empty or is it half full? And a person with a defeated disposition will be thwarted by the most trivial of adversities. Conversely, the person who is optimistic and possesses an overcoming mentality in alignment with what God's word declares will always rise above the greatest of hardships and obstacles that lay in front of them in their life. You see, success and defeat are actually possessed within your spirit. Success and defeat are not what you have or what you've accomplished. They are who you are in your spirit. When you have uh, success and victory within your spirit, you look at everything, at every obstacle, as nothing more than an opportunity for God to bring his miracle-working power to bear in your life, for God to open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings that will go to work in your life. But when you have a defeated spirit, no matter how small your trouble may be or crisis is or obstacle that you have to get around or how even temporary your problem might be, something in you always wants to pull back and give up and throw in the towel. And if you're going to get where God wants you to be, it's not going to be without some obstacles and some people getting in the way. And many times these obstacles come in the form of crisis, which we do everything we can to never experience. I don't know too many people that are running around saying, hey, I'm looking for crisis. If anything, we're trying to get away from crisis. But you have to determine within your heart, your mind, and your spirit a uh, type of resolve that just causes you to press on to keep walking. I'm an overcomer because that's what God declares I am. As a matter of fact, his word says, I am more than an overcomer. My prayer for you is that as you listen to this sermon today and you reach this critical juncture within you, you will shrink back 
You will not shrink back, rather. You will not turn back. You will not step back. Or will you go back? You see, I've heard people say too often, especially when you uh, start putting on the numbers, when the numbers of your life the, uh, that, equate, that equate your age, when they start getting up there, you start getting that feeling like, you know, the best days are behind you. When you're coming to the end of your career, you feel like the best days of your career are behind you. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that your best days are not behind you. They are the days that lie ahead of you. You have to believe it as a prophetic promise and press on. You, 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 matter of fact, you should put that in the comment section. My best, day, my best days are in front of me. You see, the idea is not that we have our lives in some perfectly arranged order, but the idea is that we have a God who is blessing us while he is yet perfecting us. You ought to uh, give your neighbor a high five and tell your neighbor, there is beauty in my trouble. As a matter of fact, I dare you. Paul said glory in your trouble. I dare you to write into the comment section, there is beauty in my trouble. And I just said a moment ago, we have been taught and have this desire to avoid trouble or to avoid crisis as best we can. In fact, we like comfort and convenience and well, crisis is anything but comfortable and it's surely, when you're first dealing with it, anything but convenient. When crisis comes, we deny it as if something is wrong with us for even having to go through whatever the situation is that we are going through. Maybe even something you're going through right now. In fact, we don't even want anyone to know that we've had bad days. We run around and we say, hey, I ain't got no bad days. It's all good. We want people to think that we are perfect. So we put our mask on and say, I'm the head and not the tail. I'm above and not believe, uh, beneath. I can run through a truth and leap over a wall. I'm greater than Superman. All the while we feel like we've been run over by a Mack truck and have smashed right into that same wall that them poor crash dummies are flung into in all those vehicle crash test commercials. You feel like you're the dummy sitting in the seat. The idea is not that we have our lives perfectly in order. Rather, the idea is that we have a God who is blessing us while he is yet perfecting us. His blessing us through and along with our journey. You are not where you are going. As a matter of fact, you ought to begin to just believe this in yourself. I am not where I am going. I am just on my way there. I am not. Where I am in life is not the end of my journey. This was not the goal where I am right now. This is just on the way. We've been taught to look towards some great arrival point in life, some uh, goal, uh, some finish point. But our life truly is not headed toward one arrival point. 
There is not one pivotal moment in our life as some people would try to teach you or have you to believe. If truth is told, we are living a life of consistent arrivals as you go from one level to the next level to the next level to the next, etc., etc., etc. Thank you, King and I. Through it all, we have somehow attached this false uh, definition to spirituality. We equate spirituality with having arrived at the point where we no longer have any struggles or we no longer have to deal with problems or uh, you're, you're not coming into a place of adversity in your life. But the truth is the people who don't have any struggles in their life are the same people who have already been conquered. The fact that there is a fight means you haven't been conquered. Opposition is merely a sign that you are still in the fight. I remember when I was in training, uh, in, in, in uh, battle training, they would teach us that if you feel pain, that's just an indication that you are still alive. Well, your crisis is just an indication. It's just a sign that you are still in the fight. You ought to put in the comment section, I'm still in the fight. I'm still in the fight. When you purpose in your heart to press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, oh, you will discover that there will be a whole host of enemies that will set themselves up against you. But you have to stir yourself and say, I am able to arise in the middle of my adversity and I will win this game. I will win this game. You see, you're playing the game of life not to lose. I don't know anyone that plays a game to lose. I play a game to win. One of the most profound golf statements that Tiger Woods made, and he made this when he was just coming into the PGA Tour that always struck with me and stayed with me. They asked him, do you think that you can you know, win? You're going up against all these great uh, champions and all these great players on the tour. And Tiger says, I didn't come here to lose. Then he said, coming in second place sucks. And third is even worse. I came to win. I have a mentality that every time I hit the course, I, 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 I'm here to win. People of God, we need to adopt the attitude and the mentality that every time I arise in the morning, God has given me yet another opportunity to win. He's opened up for me yet another opportunity to allow his power to be revealed in my life. And God's power doesn't move me to defeat. It always moves me, propels me to victory. You are playing the game of life to win it. And until everything that God has said over your life comes to pass, you keep pressing on. I know that there are promises over my life that have not yet come to pass. That means I know I still have time to get it together. To get myself where God wants me to be. Because there's stuff left for me to still do. We also have this tendency to compare ourselves to others. We always have this, this tendency to do this. 
And when we start comparing ourselves, we start trying to act like people that we attach uh, the, the mantle of success to. And we try not to act like people that we attach the mantle of defeat to. We have this tendency of always comparing ourselves to other folk. God watches the way we respond to other people's blessing and the way that we respond to their failures and their weaknesses as well. Once you see a person's humanity with all of their flaws, God looks at you and asks you this question. Now that you see the imperfection that I see, will you love even as I love? Some people don't go to church because they're afraid of the uh, uh, you know, spiritual police who think it's their job to be Holy Ghost ghostbusters. Some people stay away because when you slip up, it becomes their job to pull you over and cite you from the revised code and to explain to you your violation at the side road of your life. Others are afraid of the self-appointed vigilante bounty hunters that are running through the house of God shooting at everybody. The Bible says this in Galatians be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Check the text. Galatians 6 and 7. I know you just saw it come before your eyes. If your brother is overtaken and falls, the Bible declares that when you who are spiritual, your purpose becomes to restore them. You are supposed to restore your brother. It's our job to seek to restore those that are in the body of Christ. Be a restorer, not a judge. And recognize that you are moving toward maturity when you recognize even your own humanity, especially when you see the humanity of others. We've been called to identify with people in crisis. Let me say that again for you. We have been called. What's my purpose? Why am I here? What does God want me to do? I'm telling you, listen. God is declaring you've been called to identify with people in their crisis. Jesus was known as what? A friend of of the sinner. We act like, you know, people that we know that have sin in their life, they're, they're a plague. And that people that we don't know, that, but you, you look at their life, you can tell that they're sinners. They've never made that confession. Their, their life is indicative of a life of a sinner. And we treat them like they're lepers. We stay away from them. We've been taught, oh, don't hang out with them. Because if you do, you're going to become a sinner. And then we use this same phrase all the time. Don't let your good be evil spoken of. Don't you know that that's all the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did with Jesus? Because Jesus hung out with sinners. He was not afraid to reach out and watch this. I know this is going, going to go against all you germaphobes. It's okay, honey. You can touch people. Jesus reached out and was not afraid to touch people. 
while they were in the middle of a crisis. It always makes me laugh, uh, you know, uh, especially since COVID and, and everything that's going on. And, and believe me, I'm not speaking against washing your hands. But if I shake somebody's hand and my wife is around me, as soon as I reach out my hand, I can already see and feel the wheels turning in her head going, oh my gosh, why do people have to touch each other? And then she'll give me that look, you know, that encouraging nudge that says, get to the sink quick because maybe what they got, if they got anything, might rub off on you. And it makes me laugh and, and I do, I go wash my hands because you, you don't know physically, you know, what you could contract because germs and things of this nature do transfer through touch and many other things. I used to tease my wife that she's gonna be like Michael uh, Jackson one day and I'm gonna come home and she's gonna be in a bubble. and be like, can I get in? She's gonna say, no, you've been outside, I don't know. But Jesus was not afraid to reach out and touch people when they were in the middle of a crisis. You see, religious people, on the other hand, uh, act as though a person with a crisis is a leper. And if you are in a crisis, they reason that something must be wrong with you. Now, under the Old Covenant, let me, let me just give you some Bible uh, teaching here. Under the Old Covenant, the priests were never allowed to touch the lepers. If they touch the lepers, the sickness or the uncleanness, which is indicative of sin, would contaminate the cleanliness of the priests themselves. You see, in the old covenant, in a sense, the sin was greater than their own righteousness. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he touched the leper. You see, under the new covenant, the uncleanliness of the leper does not contaminate the righteousness of Christ. In fact, Jesus cleansed the lepers by touching them. Jesus gave us the commission and the authority and yes, even the protection to join him in his ministry to cleanse all the lepers, to remit the power that sin held over them and to make them feel comfortable in their own skin. Jesus is our high priest. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities because of his own crisis, which was manifest in him in the cross. He, yes, Jesus does get us, just not like the commercials say. He does get us. Why? Because he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities, Hebrews 4 and 15. And until you go through a crisis, you don't have the ability to be touched with the feeling of another person's crisis. You see, crisis alleviates you from the pressure of other people's expectations. And before you can touch their lives, you learn uh, not to need their approval. 
You also learn that people have, uh, have to spend some time sitting with the exiles. Many people have the power to bless or help someone in need, but they are too busy trying to maintain that holy image. What I'm saying in short is they don't want to be contaminated by anyone else's problems and are religiously indignant at the thought of even being seen with someone who has issues. We tend to run away from those who have problems. What if Jesus said, I want you to go join yourself to someone who is struggling right now? It may be some sin that you are struggling with. You know, AA, uh, A, or that's the insurance company, AA. The addiction thing would tell you if you're an alcoholic to stay away from alcohol. And that makes human sense. But it's amazing how God doesn't follow the wisdom of men. His wisdom is so much greater than ours because he may take you, if you've been delivered from alcoholism, you've been delivered from whatever addiction, God might take you and ask you to join yourself with, partner with, Someone who is struggling with the very thing he delivered you from. He might do this. And if you're more concerned about your image and your reputation than anything else, he might very well do it for your benefit as well as the benefit of the one who really needs the help. Why? Because the Bible declares that we overcome by what? The word of our testimony. But if we are more concerned with what other people are going to say about us, we won't reach out to help people that are in a place of need. God, however, has a way of breaking through our wall of comfortableness and giving us the opportunity to be the friend to those that are in need. Jesus said for us, to heal the leper. We are to touch them, to help them, to heal them. But we can do that, when we, we can't do that when our focus is in preserving our own righteous appearance. Some of us are just spiritually arrogant. And we need to remove our arrogance. Crisis produces a broken and contrite heart. It does this in us so that we are able to help those who are hurting or struggling because we don't see ourselves as superior to them. Arrogance is therefore removed. We recognize that we would not be who we are today if it weren't for the grace of God in our lives. How can we think of ourselves more highly than we ought? I think about my life with my wife. And while I know that we have done things and said things that probably weren't really good for either of us, I also know as painful as those things may have been, they are what helped shape who we are today. They are what helped us love each other in the manner that we love each other so deep and strong, so bound together because of what we've been through together. 
When you meet a condescending or arrogant person, they have a way of making you know that in, in their eyes, you don't quite measure up to them. They believe that they are something special. But the truth is, they don't even know who they are. They have an image that, keep, that they keep, you know, propped up in front of you, but that is not the real them. Jesus knew who he was. He knew where he was going. And because of that, he was willing to wash the feet of his disciples. I ain't washing nobody's feet. I'm so-and-so. You have to learn to be last if you're ever going to be first. Jesus ate with the sinners and he touched the lepers. He also got a, a, a lot of flack from those who disagreed with him. I know that I say things from time to time that I get a lot of flack from because people disagree with me. That's fine. Just like Jesus wasn't the slightest bit bothered by people who disagreed with him, he came to minister to the brokenhearted so I could care less what people have to say about me. My job is to minister to the brokenhearted. In the same fashion, when you've been through a crisis in your own life and you've been broken, you get to a place where you are willing to help people who are hurting or struggling. You also realize that you don't need anyone's support to befriend someone in need. It is no longer a concern for you. I'm going to say a really ugly six-letter word. It's an ugly word. It's a six-letter word. Some might even say that this is a cuss word, but I'm going to say it anyway. You have a necessity for change. Yep, the very thing that we know we need, which is the very thing we hate the most, change. We need change. Because without it, we would never grow. Scripture describes Moab as being at ease from his youth, having never gone into captivity. The book of Jeremiah, the 48th chapter and the 11th verse, check the text, you can check it. I, I encourage you, check the text. See if I'm out in left field or just making stuff up. Moab never had crisis, never experienced hardship, and never changed. To be in captivity with someone is to be inextricably linked to them and be willing to chain yourself to them. You know you could arrive at your destiny more easily and maybe even more quickly without them, but because of covenant, you refuse to possess your victory without them. And even if you must walk with them until God turns their captivity, you are willing willing to do so to do so but Moab would never say or do that you see for him it was uh, a, a me myself and I view of life maybe you know some Moabs maybe you have some Moab friends in your life he's going to get what he wants regardless of the people or relationships that he may destroy in addition, Moab had never been emptied 
from vessel to vessel. I've often said that um, the Bible never uses words senselessly. There's always purpose and meaning behind everything that the Bible declares. Moab had never been empty from vessel to vessel. And that might seem a little bit strange, but emptied from vessel to vessel is an analogy of circumstance. You see, in winemaking, wine is put into a vessel and the impurity of the wine in the first vessel sinks to the bottom of that vessel. Then the wine is poured into a new vessel. The more vessels and the more time that elapses, the higher the level of purity and the greater the value of the wine. But the fewer the number of vessels, the less valuable and the less pure the wine is. Vessels are the circumstances of life. And God has a desire to prosper you in life. So he pours you from one circumstance into the next circumstance. The fewer the circumstances, the less pure your faith. But the greater number of circumstances causes a level of purity that moves you from glory to glory. Crisis comes to produce in us a humility and a sense of brokenness because Moab had not been poured from vessel to vessel. His taste remained in him and his scent is not changed. Like a cup that uh, has a drink that's left in it too long or uh, my wife uh, doesn't really care for metal uh, like thermoses that have the metal lining on the inside because when you pour something new in them, you still get that taste and that taste of the vessel itself uh, dominates what you've poured in. No matter what God might put in Moab, the old taste and the smell or the old way of thinking still remain. And since this stagnant, unchanged position is not God's best, he says, I will send him to him uh, wanderers that will cause him to wander and shall empty his vessels and break their bottles. Now, wanderers are vagabonds. They are people who are not in covenant with you. And these individuals Individuals will mess up your world. They will break your bottles and cause your systems to fail. And if this doesn't happen, no growth will ever come in your life. You've got to learn how to leap from being a leper to a leader. Sometimes it's the lepers, the individuals we don't want to talk to or be around who end up with the revelation or the breakthrough that we need in our own life. In 2 Kings, the 7th chapter, there were four lepers men and they were sitting just outside the gates of Samaria. And you know what they were doing? And this is... You know, some, sometimes the, the, the Bible is R-rated. In some cases, it's X-rated. Sometimes it's just plain nasty. 
These four leprous men that are sitting outside the gates of Samaria, they were eating donkey heads. Do you know what that's indicative of? It's, an, it's indicative of rebellion. They were also eating dove's dung, which is indicative, Now I want you to get this, because there are a lot of churches that are eating dove's dung right now. This is an indication or it's indicative, a sign of a leftover move of the Holy Spirit. You see, the city eventually is even going to reach the point where the only thing left was to start eating their own children. I've seen churches that are just like this. They're stagnant. They're rebellious. And the only thing that they, are, that they have is a leftover move of the Holy Spirit. Let me get back to the, to, to the lepers. The, the, these four lepers, they, they knew they would not be getting any more handouts. I mean, people are getting ready to eat their children. So they said, they reasoned within themselves according to scripture, why should we sit here until we just die? I mean, if we're going to die, we might as well die as close to food as we can or as close to victory as they could. So they started, they decided that they were going to start walking away from their famine. <laughs> That's a whole nother sermon right there. You matter of fact, you ought to jot that to the side. I need to walk away from my famine. But that's a story for another day. They started walking away from their famine and toward a city that was filled with abundance. Now at that point, the power of God came into action. Oh, when you begin to walk away from your famine is when the power of God will be manifest in your life. God took the little that they had and in this case, all that they had was the sound of their footsteps. God took the little sound of their footsteps and he multiplied it so that the enemy camp heard chariots and thousands of soldiers approaching. The noise was so great that the people in that city were terrified and they ran away. But, you know, they didn't just run away. They ran away and left their food still cooking on the stove. Now, had the leprous men heard the noise, their actions would have required no faith. But instead, they stepped out in faith only to find a completely deserted enemy camp. And they returned to Samaria with the good news and the entire city was saved as a result of this, of these four leprous men who had been cast out and were sitting outside the gate. It might be a crisis, but it will also be your breakthrough. Sometimes prior to liberation, brokenness must come. Anointing flows more perfectly through brokenness. The light of Gideon's army was invisible until the pictures were broken to reveal it. 
The woman with the alabaster box could only release the costly perfume in the box by breaking the box that held it. Jesus, like the bread, was broken for us. Don't be frustrated with your crisis. It is possible that you are finding a level of brokenness that will cause a sweet spirit to be released and a glorious light to be seen. The very thing that will prepare you to be given to others even as Christ was given for us. When we experience our own tribulation, our rigid religious attitudes will begin to soften. We begin to realize that everyone has hurts. Everyone is dealing with pain. Not every plan is going to work out the way we want it to. In fact, sometimes being stripped of other people's opinions of us by having our own reputation damaged or soiled or sullied can be liberating because it makes us more approachable by those we are supposed to be restoring. No matter how difficult your crisis may be, rest assured that God is not getting you for your past evil. You are not being paid back for yesterday. Some people believe this, but God is a redeemer of time. He is the God of yesterday and he restores the years that the locusts have eaten as declared in his word, Joel 2 and 25. He can reach back into your yesterday and take your bad decisions and turn them into good into a good future the truth is the enemy is trying to stop you because of what tomorrow holds for you your best is not behind you it is in front of you you are in the fight of your life because the enemy wants to keep you from the greatest triumph in your life not because of what yesterday held the battle is not over your past. The battle is over your future. The battle is for your future harvest. And the greater the battle, the greater your future. If you think that you are in the greatest fight of your life right now, don't get tunnel vision on the fight. Hear me today. You are in the greatest fight of your life because the greatest harvest is not the harvest you've already enjoyed. It's the harvest you will enjoy. You are in a fight because the enemy doesn't want you to get where God has sent you. But you have to make up in your own mind I will not be stopped and I close with this thought something that another basketball player shared about Kobe Bryant he said that he had gone to the gym and Kobe Bryant he, and he went early but Kobe Bryant was already in the gym, had already been in the gym working out for a period of time before he got there. 
and he goes through his workout. He's doing his thing, getting himself ready for the game. He had been in there a couple of hours. And when he's done, he's leaving. And as he's leaving, he notices that Kobe Bryant is still working out. And he says that he asked Kobe, I think it was after the game, he asked Kobe why that was. And Kobe shared with him a realization that sometimes there may be people that have greater talents or gifts than you. But how hard you work is up to you. And Kobe shared with him, I wanted you to know you will never outwork me. Saints of God, you ought to get, as they say, some grit in your crawl and tell the devil, no matter what, you will not outwork me and keep me from what God has laid before me. I will win because God says I've won. And there's nothing that he can do about it. God bless you. Surround yourself even with sometimes the strangest of people because those may be the very people necessary to put you in the position to receive your increase and not just receive it but understand it and handle it have an awesome Sunday God bless you this has been a production of the GMFC studios God bless you.